and welcome to this week's episode of Shakespeare in Quarantine. We are joined this week by Game of Thrones actor Harry Lloyd and we all discuss bad influences, friends that maybe have led us astray in the past and Jimmy's favourite play of all time, Henry IV Parts 1 and 2. It's your favourite play isn't it Jimmy? It certainly is. It's, I mean Part 2 especially because it was the first play that was taught really well and made me properly fall in love with Shakespeare and I was in sick form and yeah, I, I it, it sounds really grand and really lovely to say this, but it's one of the very, very few plays that I fell in love with, genuinely fell in love with. I directed a production of it at university, which goes down as the most joyous experience I've had working on anything ever. And it just, it meant so much to me. I think, I don't know why. I think we had a phenomenal teacher. Did you ever have a great teacher at school? Um, teachers didn't really like me at school. <laughs> <laughs> well, they definitely, yeah, this was one of the very few that liked me. It makes all the difference, I think, when you have a great teacher. You know, we talk a lot in this story about um, a rebel prince in Prince Hal. Um, and at the very same time we were learning the play, Prince Harry was falling out of nightclubs. He was a prince who was a bit of a rebel who was, you know, rejecting this responsibility that lay ahead of him. Yeah, made it really relatable, I think. This is your favourite play. It's not my favourite play. But I really like that Shakespeare has written plays about real people. And I always find the, the truth behind the real person and the character that he's written fascinating. Some of the facts that I found out whilst researching this was that this is the only play to include the word radish. <laughs> This is also the play that coined the phrases send him packing and give the devil his due. Uh, they both come from part one. I just love all of these phrases each week when we do a new play. And I'm like, oh my God, Shakespeare invented this phrase that we use all the time. I mean, to be honest, I don't use it, give the devil his due that often. But sent him packing sounds like something you'd hear in EastEnders being like, I sent him packing. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I just thought when you mentioned EastEnders, I thought of Peggy Mitchell, get out my pub. And that is a character called Mistress Quickly in Henry the Fourth, who who runs the pubs in Eastcheap and is basically that character. So it is fitting, actually, you know, not that we're in any way advocating alcoholism on this podcast, but you know, the week the pubs are reopening, this is a very fitting uh, world to be playing in. The streets of East Cheap, the boisterous fun frivolity happening all over London. Very fitting play, I think, to uh, to tie in with, uh, with July the 4th, definitely. Some um, other little facts that I've got about this are the real Henry the 4th was the 17th great-grandfather of Queen Elizabeth, our current monarch. I don't even want to try and say great, 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 great 17 times because I think it will be a nightmare. And then the last little fact that I, I find this really weird and bizarre, and I need to do a bit more research into this, but the real Henry IV's head was found in a tax collector's attic in 2012. No way. Yeah. That's weird. That's around the same time they found Richard III's body in Leicester, isn't it? Some, I don't know, actually, maybe it was like a couple of years before, but someone clearly went around a, a spree of digging up ancient Shakespearean limbs. That's bizarre. Oh, well. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown is a quote from the play. Uh, uneasy lies the head that stays in a tax collector's attic i guess you know <laughs> we've uh, given you a little bit of history and just to, to bring you up to speed if you don't know this play super well jimmy can you give us 
the summary? Sure. Plays in two parts. So they're two plays. So we're not going to go into a kind of plot by plot narrative, but the general summary is that this is the sequel from Richard II. So for those of you who listen to our podcast on Richard II, think of this as the Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> Henry Bolingbroke defeated Richard II. Henry Bolingbroke is Henry IV. So he's a lot older now. And he became king. And the play isn't really about him. The play focuses on the breakdown of this friendship between Henry IV's son, who's called Prince Hal, and his friend Falstaff. Um, Prince Hal is like a kind of young guy, probably about 20 years old. And Falstaff is an old, jovial, fat man in a pub. He's about 60. So it's an unlikely friendship, but it's a really real one. And it's a really strong one. Falstaff is very much, as, as we said, he's boisterous, boozy rebel who uh, is not one that you'd associate with law and order at all. But he's very fun and he's very lively and he always gets into trouble. And I think Prince Hal likes to hang out with him because of this. It's a story about how the wayward Prince Hal, um, who spends his days drinking and misbehaving in pubs with Falstaff, has to decide between this life or the royal courts of England. And he's got this responsibility ahead of him of becoming king. So it's a real heart against head decision that he's in. The play deals with three different worlds that we dance between. So one of the worlds is this very harsh world of law and order in the courts and the royal courts of justice, where you've got characters like the King and Warwick and Gloucester and John of Lancaster, and it's very stale and it's very harsh and nasty almost. Um, and then you've got the streets of Eastcheap, which is basically, you know, basically all the all the low lives and vagabonds and Falstaff and the the misbehaviors, and that's very colourful and very alive and very fun and it's all sort of crazy and all the taverns in in london and then you've got the other world uh, which is basically the rebel army that are raising an army against the king and that's like hotspur and percy and that kind of takes place in the fields and the battlefields and everything like that i know which one i would rather be in and i feel like i know which one it's going to be this saturday when the pub's open <laughs> me too i'd love to be at the royal courts during that time as well <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just worth mentioning here there's there's a lot of like name confusion um i find it in a lot of shakespeare's plays you have characters which have got like multiple names and i think we've talked about it a few times henry the fourth is the title character and that is the the king the father and then we have prince hal who is also harry who is also Henry V. So if we jump around with names and things and it's Harry, Hal, Henry, we'll make sure we say Henry the Fourth for the father. Just to make it a bit clearer as well, like he's very rarely called Henry. He's only called Henry really uh, like, you know, maybe by like his father, but he's mainly called Henry V in the play that comes next. So he's mainly called Hal or Harry, really. I think actually he's called Harry by his dad and he's called Hal by all the, by all the, the these cheap pub drinkers. So let's look at part one. We have the Percy family. So they have helped Henry get to the throne and he is constantly in conflict with them. He's annoyed that they're refusing him the prisoners and in return, they're annoyed that he's refusing to ransom their relative Mortimer. So they then go away and raise a rebellion. He's also really annoyed that his son, Hal, is spending all of his time getting drunk in the pubs, not focusing on the responsibility of you know, learning how to be king for when it's his time to take over. Basically, at the end of this story, at the end of part one, this first play, 
Hal challenges Percy to a one-on-one fight. So he basically says, in order to spare the blood of both sides, I'm going to challenge you to a fight, and then we're going to see which direction the country's going to go in. If you win, the Percy family can take over, and my dad won't be king anymore, and you can do the thing that you want to do and all this kind of stuff. But if I win, you've got to just get lost and accept the fact that Henry IV is king, I'm sorry, and that's the way it's going to be. So they have this one-on-one fight. Hal ends up winning the fight, but there's this really funny moment where Hal wins and basically kills Percy, and Percy's lying on the ground. And during this time, Falstaff is lying <laughs> asleep, but we think he's, he's pretending to be dead. And then when Hal goes, Falstaff wakes up, sees the dead Percy, and just slides a tiny knife in him, and then carries Percy back to the battlefield and claims that um, when Hal left, Percy woke up and he had this crazy fight with him and it was really brutal, but he eventually managed to slay him. And Hal, you can see it in Hal's eyes. He knows that Falstaff's just lying, but he just allows him to have this this like truth if he wants to have it. So that's a kind of lovely way that um, that part one ends. It's quite funny. It's a recurring theme, that isn't it? Like Falstaff telling these like tall tales. Even like at the beginning of the play, they talk about how how they're going to stage a robbery and fake rob uh, Falstaff just because the story he'll tell will be so hilarious and, and the tall tale that'll come out of it. So it's it's like a well known yeah. character trait from him. And there's and there's this great scene in part one where they both play different people. It's very theatrical this play, and there's a lot of dressing up and. The, the interesting thing is in part one, Hal and Falstaff spend a lot of time with each other. And in part two, they don't. They're, they're rarely with each other. So in part two, when they're rarely with each other, that's a lot about Falstaff telling stories of Hal to people, which is basically lies. But when they're together, they they there's this great scene where they um, Hal plays his father and Falstaff plays Hal. They say, Hal says, right, I'm going to play my dad and you can play me. And they, they they reenact this role where Hal, as his father, is saying, you should banish Falstaff. And Falstaff is Hal saying, no, no, don't banish Falstaff. And uh, eventually Hal just looks into Falstaff's eyes and says, I do, I will. And that's like an eye opener into what he's what he's going to do. A nice little bit of foreshadowing there, isn't it, about what, what's going to come. Definitely. Carrying on with the story, eventually King Henry IV, title character, is dying. And he's really upset with his son for how he's, you know, not taking his role properly and he's not risen to the challenge and he screams at him when he's on his deathbed. Upon hearing the scream, he makes this promise that he will take on the proper responsibility. He will rise to the occasion and he's going to make his father proud. And basically, it's like when your parents scream at you so loudly and you're like, oh, shit, I've been scared into submission. Mm. Or, or when they're like, I'm not. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. And you're like, oh, they're serious now. So um, I've really got to pull my finger out. That's literally the worst thing a parent could say to you, isn't it? I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. It's so, it's such a knife jab, isn't it? You're like, oh no, God. But actually, <laughs> interestingly, going back on, on what you were saying earlier, it's really interesting. So I've just remembered actually that with this whole thing we were talking about, oh, Hal, Harry and Henry, I, I, I could be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure that King Henry IV calls him deliberately Harry. And he calls him Harry because he said, you haven't earned Henry yet. So he says on his deathbed, he says, Harry V is crowned, up vanity, down royal state, as in it will be a disaster when you're king. It'll be awful. And he screams at him. 
and he refuses to ever call him Henry. And that is such an interesting thing because it's so deliberate. It's like he's deliberately calling him the opposite of what he wants to be. He has this, I call it the Gollum from the Lord of the Rings moment where, you know, he's he's over his father's deathbed and he sees the crown and he's like, my precious. And he takes the crown and he puts it on his head and he just... And I'd be very interested to ask our guest this later on, but you know, for me, that's the moment that he decides to be that he's go that he's going to go through with this, and he's going to lose his uh, his bad influences, and he's going to actually take on because it's the corruption of power, isn't it? You put something on your head, that's when you feel for the first time what power feels like. You know, it's the Darth Vader moment of. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And you know, I know that there's a lot of this kind of he's a terrible king and he does all these horrible things in in the the plays that follow but also i feel like his dad is dying and it's he is kind of like boy becoming man almost i mean not the best man but it is like it's a growing up moment isn't it and then he like sheds all of his like sort of immature ways and he turns his back on his friends um which is horrible and heartbreaking but it's it's almost like you know you have to let go of of all of the like the folly and childish crap that you've been doing because actually the the real responsibility is more important you've got to rule a whole country and take care of people and actually getting pissed in the pub probably isn't as important completely this is where i actually have a bit of sympathy for this character and it's controversial to say that because i remember when i was directing it people were saying to me god you know i've never realized how much of a bastard henry the fifth was he's so awful but think in a weird way I, I related to it I think that's why I love this play so much because when I was 16 my parents really wanted me to pass exams and they really wanted me to focus on my studies and try and get into university and down the road from where I lived there was a boy who was a very very bad influence and a bit of a rebel and they were a bit worried about me hanging out with him and that was like my false staff do you know what I mean and so I kind of felt Hal's frustration he's not enjoying this when he rejects false stuff it's a very public rejection it's very horrible but i think it's so much more interesting when you don't play it as a as just this horrible rejection where he hates him but actually that it's very painful for how to do this that he's almost you know this is one of the horrible things that he has to do as 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 part of his coronation to becoming king he has to lose these people and if he just says to falstaff look mate at the end of the day i can't really hang out with you anymore falstaff won't really understand that he'll keep on coming back it's like he has to be so horrible to him, be cruel to be kind. It, it makes me think of, I'm going to say it, Disney films um, or any kind of sort of like dog film, you know, where like the boy is like, get out of here, boy, go, go. It's that. You've got to sort of be really mean. Or in like Moulin Rouge, where she talks to Christian and she's like, I oh, don't no. love you. I made you believe that I loved you to save his life. She says that, you know, she doesn't love him and it was all an act and a lie so you have to hurt the ones you love that's, that's such a good example because they i think they do say in moulin rouge don't they they say hurt him to save him yeah you're right i think i think it's you know all through part two falstaff is under the impression that he is going to be that when hal becomes king he's going to be invited into the courts and given like the chief title role this vision of utopia that england's just going to be this wonderfully fun place but he's so excited by that and he talks to all the people in the pub like pistol and mistress quickly and poins and all these people he's telling them all about this and he's so excited by this and hal knows how excited he is by this that actually hal has to be this 
horrific to Falstaff. It's the only way to silence him. It's mm-hmm. the only way that he's not going to keep on trying to come back like a boomerang because by being so hurtful to him, it's it's the only way that he can move on. And it's not really to save Falstaff. I think in a way it's to save the country because he's thought, right, I've. it's the guilt of what his father said to him. It's had such an effect on him where he suddenly feels bad for all the things that he's done in the past. And he's thought, okay, the only way now I can move forward and take this country forward and take on this role that's been given to me is to cut off the band-aid of these people that are that are kind of holding me back, you know? I do feel like, though, it's, like you're saying, it is a bit of an act because he doesn't just completely shun him and get rid of him. He does give him a pension in the end. He does, like, he just kind of, like, set him up. So even though he's kind of like, I can't be your friend and I can't see you anymore and does it in a very unkind public way, he does financially sort him out so he's not completely abandoned. I've got an interesting question for you because... Falstaff and Henry V in the play that you know comes after this he dies and Mistress Quickly who's looking after him when he dies says the king hath ki- has killed his heart so there is this idea that he's despite the fact that he's very ill he's died of a broken heart and I don't know do you think that people can die of broken hearts do you think that because there's this idea that actually Falstaff I mean he's very ill in health He's very fat. He drinks like a fish. He's ridiculously unhealthy. He's got this big white beard. He's, you know, and he uh, should really, like, in a way, have a quite a short life. And it's the moment that he's rejected that he dies. And it's this idea that actually he's been very ill all the time. But the one thing keeping him alive was the hope. And when that goes, all he's got is his ill health. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's 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 killing someone's spirit is... is terrible i also feel like uh, i'm sure everybody can relate to this with like grandparents if they were still together or even just you know married or what or with a partner that i i find that like once one of them goes the other one goes pretty quickly like with my grandma and my grandparents we had my my granddad died and he, he really shouldn't have he it was a terrible medical situation and the doctor screwed up horrendously and my granddad died but then after that my grandmother she deteriorated so quickly and then died like she didn't want to live without him and you know not saying that full stuff and and Hal have have that kind of relationship but love can be in any kind and yeah it's heartbreaking to lose someone that you love like that and to be literally cut out of their life I think is it really does affect you. It's very telling, isn't it? That when, when your greatest love or your best friend is gone and the character suddenly dies, it is it does show that actually it is really important. And sometimes the things that keep you going aren't necessarily like what, what you would consider to be the things like food and health. It's it's hope and love. It, it's true. It gives you, it's something that, that, that is worth staying staying alive for. It's time for our guest. He starred in films such as The Theory of Everything, The Iron Lady, Jane Eyre and The Wife, as well as performing on stage in The Duchess of Malfi, A View from the Bridge, and he was about to open in The Dumb Waiter at the Hampstead Theatre when COVID hit. He is known for his roles on television in Doctor Who, Robin Hood, Counterparts and Game of Thrones, to name but a few. His new TV series, Brave New World, is about to launch in the States and will be with us this autumn. Welcome to the podcast, Harry Lloyd. Hi, Jimmy. How's it going, dude? You both have got coffees and teas and stuff, and I'm just 
sat here being envious. Have you watched Staged on BBC at the moment? It's like Michael Sheen and David Tennant rehearsing and David Tennant keeps drinking from a mug with his own face on it from Hamlet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw a few of them. I didn't realize I'm friends with um, the guy who made it, the director, Simon Evans. Uh, and I just started watching it. I didn't realize that he's been true to form, busy in lockdown and clearly just took advantage. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's great. It's fun. Is he, is he playing himself in it then? He's actually, that's him. Seems to be. Seems to be. Yeah, I've only seen a couple, but uh, yeah, that's, that's him. What's it called? Staged? Staged. It's on iPlayer. Yeah, it's only 15 minute long episodes and there's only like six of them, but it, it's a nice bit of lockdown relief. There you go. Yeah. We're talking on this week's episode about Jimmy's favourite play ever. And you were in it in The Hollow Crown. You played Mortimer, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that character? Because we haven't really gone to a lot of depths of all the characters. Okay. So Mortimer is someone who, in like the previous play, uh, Richard II, would have been on the side of the people who helped make Wallingbrook king. So that's now Henry IV. And he's now on that side, even though he's related to Hotspur, who becomes the main rebel, Harry Percy, he's the main kind of rebel uh, in Henry IV part one. Uh, so I've gone off to fight the Welsh on behalf of the new king and I lose and I get captured. Rumor has it that I may be, uh, I'm not too unhappy about my captivity. And bearing in mind, I do have a claim to the throne myself if I hadn't helped uh, support this rebel. Mortimer is talked about before we meet him at the beginning of the play, and he's an issue. And uh, Hotspur comes to court and says, I'm not going to give you my newly won Scottish prisoners until you get my brother-in-law out of Welsh prison. And, uh, and the king's like, well, I, I don't really trust Mortimer, frankly. And thus, basically, he sets up this main alliance. And so based in Wales, we soon have Hotspur and Mortimer and Glendower and talks of Douglas and suddenly we've got a real party of rebels and we can all fight together and that's kind of what sets off the big battle for Shrewsbury at the end of the first play but Mortimer when we meet him uh, is a funny dude because he is now married Glendower's daughter he doesn't speak any English and he's quite up for this rebellion uh, but then eventually doesn't even turn up to the battle <laughs> um, so he's a quirky one, and I just watched back the uh, the scenes that I did in Nolagram, and even though I would now definitely play it in a very different way, uh, at the time I definitely seemed to be tickled by his weirdness and by his newly found Welsh love. But he seems like quite a pleasant chap. You were trying to break up that big argument, weren't you, in that scene where you described it as uh, it was unprofitable chat, wasn't it? Which was unprofitable chat. Well, yeah. Hotspur turns up and he's meant to be absolutely the diplomat. This is a chance to unite the rebels. And he straight away takes offence at Glendower's pomposity and in his claims that the earth trembled when I was born and the skies <laughs> were afire, uh, which is, you know, it seems to be fairly straightforward Welsh chat. Uh, oh, Hotspur, uh, you know what? I'm sorry. I take offence to that. I am... Hey, I'm Welsh. half Welsh myself. Uh, Floyd is uh, my clan. We uh, the, the Welsh quietly believe in their uh, um, absolute superiority, for sure, as they should. <laughs> uh, but Hotspur doesn't like the cut of his jib and doesn't. Uh, he says the uh, if the if the sky was uh, the earth was only trembling, if the sky was on fire. If these are the things that you are claiming, and uh, eventually he kind of wins the fight, and Mortimer backs down and agrees to look at this map. 
which Hotspur hasn't even remembered to bring to the room, and dividing up the country between Glendower and Mortimer and Hotspur. Uh, and then Hotspur takes offense to the way the River Trent winds. And he says, you see, it must, it doth wind that way. You can't move the river. And eventually he wins that point as well. And then he says, oh, I don't even care. And Hotspur is being a real um, pig-headed uh, kind of brat, uh, despite the fact that the whole of their claim is at stake. Um, so Mortimer absolutely is trying to break up the fight. And he says, cousin, cousin. Uh, he would not, he, he, Glendower would not bear this chat from anybody else. Uh, don't take advantage of it too often. Uh, what are you doing? Um, but as ever, Hotspur doesn't really listen. And even during the next scene where everyone's listening to uh, the beautiful Welsh music and having a moment, he sneaks off for, for a bit of nookie with his wife. Interesting question that we had was that we were talking earlier about this, this evolution of Hal's decision to become king, whether there was a, a specific point in the story when Hal decides, actually, you know what, I'm going to leave my bad influences and my low lives behind and I'm going to take on this role and this is it. Do you think there's a specific moment when that happens or do you think it's like a kind of gradual thing? I think what's great about both parts of Henry IV is that it is absolutely about that journey. The man mm. at the end who denies the white-haired old fool uh, from the guy we first meet who's uh, getting pissed up in the tavern and having time of his life and shows no interest or respect for uh, the monarchy at all. Uh, so no, I don't think there's an epiphany moment for him. Obviously a crucial uh, moment is when he takes his father's crown thinking he's dead. And does it, is it ambition in him? He denies it and kind of gets away with it. Mm. But if not before then, then definitely at least then he's got his eye on it. And, and in a way he, he steps up in the first part the way that he's described as being, you know, like winged Mercury on his horse. He's as soon as he gets into battle, he's the man he should become and he wins the fight and is heard about. I mean, Falstaff assumes a certain relationship, which may have already died. You know, the fact that the play opens with rumor introduces the kind of theme for the second part, which is that no one really knows what's going on. All parts of the country are kind of messed up and it's, mm. a, it's, a, it's a murkier part of the second play. You were talking about Falstaff as a white-bearded fool who assumes his position. You obviously have a very clear opinion on who he is as a person. Does that mean that you sort of sympathise with Hal having to be like, see ya, you're, you're out of here? In terms of feeling sympathy for him, I feel for Hal and what he has to do and all the things he has to do. Uh, and more than most, to catch up on his dissolute past. The fact that the, right at the end of the play, as soon as he's dismissed, Falstaff is like, no, no, he didn't mean that. He'll call me privately and, oh, yeah, that money I owe you, Bardolf, uh, let's go to dinner. So he doesn't, even though there's that kind of tragic scene of his uh, demise in Henry V, mm. Falstaff himself is the, I mean, Hal says to him, if you step up, I'll, I'll give you ambition. I'll, I'll show you reward if you now take yourself away and lose some weight and sort yourself out. <laughs> and, you know he, and you know he's not going to. So, you know, he gives yeah. him yeah, we were saying that like he kind of he sort of breaks his heart and he dies of a broken heart almost in in the the play that follows it. I think so. I yeah, I think that feels right. I mean, bearing in mind he will have had any number of other conditions than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever known any any Falstaffs? Have you stumbled across any white bearded old fools in your time? Sure. I, I mean, I did a I did a radio play once which had this fantastic cast and this very um uh, happy green room 
uh, where people wandered in and out at different times of the day. Brian Blessed took his place at my table at one point <laughs> uh, uh, and made friends with my little dog. Uh, and he had some good tales straight away. He seemed to fit the part. There was a guy when I, I filmed two seasons of Robin Hood in Budapest in 2006, seven. Uh, and there was a lot of characters there. There was one kind of Falstaffian British guy who lived in Budapest and would get roles on stuff that was visiting there. But he was someone who would take the young cast out and show them where things were. Uh, and he had a, definitely had a Falstaffian, ever pleasant. You know, I imagine he's still there. Uh, but uh, he, uh, he was wonderful. Have you ever had to make like a heart head decision where you, you know it's for the greater good, but it's probably not the easiest thing to do? I guess with acting, you're constantly wrestling it out between the two. Sometimes you've got a really strong instinct. You don't know why it worked, but you know, I need to do it. And sometimes that's exactly what you need. And sometimes actually that's, take a second, and it's just you, you're going to enjoy that, but no one else will. Uh, so <laughs> uh, I guess on a small scale at work, yeah. And I'm quite a heady dude. I like to play with it a lot. The heart side often comes when you're faced with the other person and things hit you in different ways. And um, hopefully you've got enough tools under your belt to now play it back. Yeah. I always think of actors like that, like Nicolas Cage, just kind of does what he wants. Doesn't really give he's a, a lot shit. of heart, I would say, Mr. Yeah. Cage. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's given definitely some wholehearted performance. Let's assume that everything panned out the way Falstaff wanted. So Falstaff got brought into the courts. Hal got made king. Hal didn't reject him. What what sort of a king do you think Hal would be as Henry V if Falstaff and Poins and everyone made up the courts? How, how different do you think that story would have panned out? Well, I don't think Henry V could be what it was, which is in some ways some kind of victorious ending to the whole slew of the history plays. Um, even though it goes straight into Henry the Sixth, it's kind of the last one he wrote, I believe. And he, yeah. you've got Falstaff in the mix there. Then you've got to have the comedy scenes, and if Falstaff goes to France with the rest of them, there's going to be stuff in the ranks. Then I guess maybe he can do his Agincourt speech. But Falstaff's got to step in line for that to happen. And I think the point of Falstaff is that he can't step in line. He hasn't got a lesson to learn in the way that Hal does. He's done his bit, and he's chosen it, and he will sing for sack forever. Uh, so I think he, he serves his purpose and actually he gets a spin-off. He gets Mary Wise of Windsor, that's where he goes. Um, because the Queen loved him and Shakespeare knew it and even has his apology in the text at the end of Henry the Fourth Part Two saying, I know I'm sorry this plays what it was, but don't worry, you can see full stuff soon in Mary Wise of Windsor. So uh, yeah, I don't think he can exist in Henry the Fifth's court. Um no. There's not a place for him. Yeah, yeah. He's got his own show. Yeah, he's a yeah. fan favourite. Everybody everybody champions him like, and he gets... He's like he Jerry. Yeah, he, he gets a couple of seasons. Yes, which was terrible. Yeah, yeah. You see um, uh, Orson Welles' film, Chimes at Midnight, which I remember watching in university thinking I'll get a pricey of all the plays if I watch this film, um, which again similarly follows just the relationship between Hal and Falstaff all the way through him. And, and it's um, black and white and moody and weird and kind of great. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of the heart of it all, because it's personal. And mm. it, the second play broadens it out. Can, so it's not, I mean, even the first part, it's not about this new rebel king's fight to keep his power. He's kind of in the background. It's actually about the people. You see all the different walks of life 
mm. from you know prostitutes uh, to the other earls still fighting it out and you know deals with the Scottish and the Welsh. It's got a massive scale. No one can really get themselves together because no one's got a strong claim. The country is in real disarray, and therefore only a character who has seen all the different walks of life and I think has got an understanding of this country is separate and uh, confused as this one is at this point. Um, right. as a character like Hal, and Hal gets to see it all, and therefore yeah. we can trust him as a king to take us out of this chaos. The Chimes of Midnight, uh, what you were talking about, Awesome Wells, is something that I've heard of and I haven't seen, and I really want to see, so I'm going to try and find yeah, it online, and that's yeah. one that we haven't mentioned. I really yet. struggled to find it, actually. I uh, I kind of forgot about it um, until recently, but I, I remember when I tried to find it, but this was back in 2000, whatever, but it was... Uh, yeah, it's been forgotten. Like, people don't watch it. We have a section where we always talk about like films that you can watch or TV series mm-hmm. or whatever, and um, or adaptations, and that hasn't come up. So that's a great one for our listeners to to check out. We've also talked about my private Idaho with uh, River yeah, Phoenix. My private Idaho. Yeah, it's such a strange film. Mm. Uh, it's a wonderful trippy. Uh, River Phoenix is as narcoleptic. Yeah. Uh, nut job he's fascinating um mm. and it's weird that it follows a shakespearean play which it kind of does especially in like the second half harry all i can say is just thanks so much for chatting to us it's been really fascinating and oh, thank you guys thanks very much indeed it's a pleasure to be yeah. good luck with all i think you're doing a great thing I, uh, uh, it's i'm not surprised your favorite play it's a good one i could i could speak for weeks about this play i love it so much <laughs> I know. I you love it you've been, you've been wanting to do this since we started the podcast so find a play where it's a lot of comedy and fun and light and then incredibly boring and dry mm. in between and i find it very stuffy when it's when it's in the sort of courtrooms discussing all of that and i just i i, I struggle with that so now we're going to discuss where you can watch it, or if you want, you can read it. Jimmy, what are your suggestions? Okay, so I would point you in the direction of The Hollow Crown, uh, which is uh, Henry the Fourth Part 1 and 2, starring Tom Hiddleston as Prince Hal and Simon Russell Beale as Falstaff, and of course Harry Lloyd as Mortimer, as well as a very, very big all-star cast, including Maxine Peake, Judy Walters. They're all in there. That is available online. You can also watch this thing on Netflix called The King, which is interesting. It stars Timothy Chalamet as Hal, and it doesn't play it completely chronologically. It kind of takes little bits from Henry V and Thor. You know, it kind of puts them all together in its own narrative, and it rearranges the jigsaw. Uh, But they're all in there, and it's very interesting. It's a bit. I mean, you talk about the fun not being in in the court scenes the fun isn't really even in the pub scenes with that it's a very serious drama and Falstaff is 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 almost like a kind of quite um serious character in that but I think it's worth it because he's he's such a good actor that guy Timothy Chalamet um and he really is phenomenal in that so for his performance it's worth watching and uh and yeah it gives a kind of all-round completion to that character I think and or you can read it yeah, I love Timothy Chalamet and um, Little Women. He absolutely broke my heart. There's this oh, line where he's like, you'll fall in love and I will watch. And I was like, oh, God. Yeah. Uh, um, there is also my own private Idaho, which has got River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves in it. And that is loosely based on 
Henry IV Part One and Two, and also Henry V, um, all in one movie. So if you fancy a, a modern adaptation and you don't want to listen to, as we say, Shakespeare language, um, you can watch that film. And Jimmy's going to disagree, but I think it counts. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll let you have that. You know, you you took the you took the Lion King for Hamlet, so I'll I'll, I'll give that one back to you. <laughs> Brilliant. So that concludes this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you think we got anything wrong, let us know. Tweet us at Shakespeare in Q. We're also on Instagram at SIQ underscore podcast. We've been posting lots of funny little memes and things on that. Mainly Shakespeare plays defined by the office quotes as of late. So if you think there's anything that you think we should see, send it to us and we will retweet it and we will post it on our Instagram. And in the meantime, stay safe and remember to wash your hands. Keep safe. Don't go into too many pubs. Bye. Bye.